0: Our Father, the psalmist, said that your faithfulness reaches to the skies. We are so thankful that you are a faithful God.
1: Faithful is he who called you. He shall bring it to pass. Thinking of that verse in Psalm 37, uh,
0: trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land
1: and feed on his faithfulness. We're up and down, Lord. We're all over the map. You're faithful. You, um, you're dependable. You're trustworthy. You've never lied, ever. You watch over your word to perform it. We thank you for your faithfulness. You're always available to us. Always. And the truth of the matter is, there are good times in life, and there are very, very hard times in life.
0: And there are times when we are anxious. We try not to be. We're worried, we try to fight it off. Usually it's about something that uh, is ahead of us a little bit, sometimes a result of a MRI, sometimes uh, waiting to hear about a, if, if a, a deal closed and we'll get a check in time, or gosh, it could be Hundreds of things. But we get anxious. And we start looking out ahead. And there are times when we're discouraged and we don't see any possible way. And we don't see any possible
1: way out of our circumstances. But you're faithful. You're faithful. And uh, sometimes in these situations we're
0: encouraged. Sometimes we're discouraged but you're faithful, and you've got your eye on us. Um, Psalmist said, when my spirit was overwhelmed, you knew my path.
1: We don't, know, we don't know what's coming. Maybe we're waiting, but you know our path. So we take all of our anxiety And we cast it upon you because you care for us. I read that section again this morning and Martin Lloyd-Jones were, he talked
0: about just holding on to your faithfulness for the next 12 hours. If we try to go out and handle what's coming a week or three weeks or six months down the road, it'll crush us. we're, We're not built for that. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own.
1: So, following that, we ask you to help us to simply narrow this thing down and trust your faithfulness for the next 12 hours. That'll help us to sleep. You've been faithful the
0: the last 12 hours, and you were faithful yesterday and the day before, and some of us have got years and years and years of history of watching you be faithful, you'll be
1: faithful again. Encourage our hearts tonight. Give us what we need from your word. Give us teachable hearts. Don't let us slough this stuff off. Don't let us get stupid. That's our default position. We need your wisdom. And we need to implement it and do it and trust you. In Jesus'
0: name we pray, amen. So, our topic for this semester, our topic for this fall season, is a little bit out of left field, but I think it deserves our attention. Um, Our topic is overcoming hyperinflation by returning to the gold standard. I... uh, actually have, well you, you, uh, I don't need to pull them out. You know what's going on in Venezuela, Uh, incredible. Maybe you've seen some of the pictures of people, I mean literally starving on the streets. Uh, Wealthiest, wealthiest uh, nation in South America. but. they they are dying financially. I had a quote from an economist must have left on my desk saying that by the end of the year it would be easy for them to be experiencing uh, inflation of a million percent. That's called hyperinflation. That's not the worst in history. The worst in history was in Hungary between 1946 and 1948 where it hit a trillion percent, a trillion percent, that's hyperinflation.
1: Alan Greenspan, the retired
0: uh, Federal Reserve Chairman, did an interview with Bloomberg last year, and he was talking about the economy, how things are looking. And and he made this statement. He said things can change very rapidly. It's possible we could find ourselves before long in a very tenuous situation. That's why I suggest that we return to the gold standard, the one that was in place prior to 1913, because that would be our best defense against hyperinflation. So, for the next 11 weeks, we're going to be looking into not that. (laughs) But we are going to look into here's the real topic. We're going to look into overcoming the hyperinflation of sin and lawlessness by returning to the gold standard of the Ten Commandments. We are surrounded by lawlessness.
1: And it has come out of nowhere. It's happened so fast, it it takes our breath away.
0: Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we keep following the Lord. We keep steady in His Word. We keep relying on Him and asking for wisdom. And we don't panic. We just stay the course. That's what we do. But the fact of the matter is, we are... Surrounded by lawlessness that is hyper-inflating, it's almost doubling daily. It's staggering. You know exactly what I'm talking about. I called. um, I called a friend. He's a he's our tax attorney. uh, Tax. Attorney for the ministry, and don't talk to him often, but it had been probably nine years since I had, we had to call him before. But we had an issue where we were working some retirement stuff, and anyway, uh, I gave him a call, asked him to call me back. And uh, so the phone rings, says, Hey, Steve, it's Willie. Hey, how you doing? Good. He said, So, Steve, Before we get into this, whatever you got. So let me get this straight. Everything has fallen apart. Uh, Everything is upside down. I grew up Catholic. It's unbelievable what's happened in the Catholic Church. I came to know the Lord in college. And this guy has a pretty good grip on scripture. But he said, just help me out here. All this chaos, all this anarchy, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, all this lawlessness, all of this corruption in the highest levels, in ways that we thought were unthinkable, Jesus is still in control, right? (laughs) And I couldn't see him, but I knew. He knows that. But it's Breathtaking. What is going on around us? Yes, it is. So we are going to begin, and what I said to him, I, I, I told him, I said, I. We, we talked for several minutes about it, and I, I said, i got to tell you something. I'm really glad that you brought this up. And the reason is, is that I am wavering on what to teach in the fall men's study. I, I'm inclined to teach the Ten Commandments, but it, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge subject. And
1: is it relevant? Is it, will it? He said, oh yeah. Yeah, he
0: said, I think, he said yeah. And... Um, That was, I don't know, that was a few weeks ago. Early in in July, right on the 1st of July, I have a friend named Wayne Grudem. He's a theologian, Um, great guy, loves the Lord, incredible credentials. Uh, Harvard, uh, Oxford. Uh, I went to junior college. I mean, this guy, I mean, he's something else. Loves the Lord, solid guy. And uh, I knew he was working on his latest book. I get this in the mail Christian Ethics. Um, He writes books like this, it's what he does. Yeah, and um, it's on ethics. We live in a culture where there, um,
1: we say that there is no absolute truth. I have a friend named John Brandon and John
0: and I have been friends for 40 years. When I was a rookie pastor in that little church on the San Francisco Peninsula, that first Sunday, I think we had about 60 people. And then the second Sunday I was there, I think we had uh, 12. (laughs) but several months later this guy walks up to me and said hey I want to introduce myself Uh, I'm John, John Brandon, I think you know my brother Dick I think you guys are in seminary together and I said oh yeah 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 well he had just graduated from UC Davis gotten married, taken a job at Texas Instruments on the peninsula they didn't call it Silicon Valley back then It was just the peninsula. And uh, we became really, really good friends. They moved just a couple streets away from us, and John and I spent a lot of time together. John was going to uh, be a pastor. He was going to work for a while, make some money, and then go to Dallas Seminary and be a pastor. And uh, we just spent hours together. I was probably 28. He was 22. And... uh, John never made it to Dallas Seminary. And he struggled with that early on. But he certainly had a ministry over the years. He went from TI and then he went to this little company that was getting started called Adobe. And uh, then he went, you know, wound up at uh, Apple right when they called Steve Jobs back after Scully was fired. And uh, it's quite a story. Uh, it wasn't the time to go to Apple. But John and Nancy, they felt like that's what the Lord was doing. So they did. He just retired a couple of years ago. And uh, John is a unique guy, has a great love for the Lord. Um, basically, ran Apple's business Everywhere except um, North America and Japan. So he'd be in Shanghai and then, you know, I'd email him and he was in London and he'd, anyway, retired a couple years ago. What's interesting is that John, uh, he's got a very unique ministry. He has a real gift of working with unbelievers. He's kind of gotten a reputation over the years in Silicon Valley as the ethics guy, the truth guy. And he speaks in business schools all over the country. I was talking to him not recently, and he was going to speak at Stanford Business School uh, I think the next night. Duke, Wharton, uh, most of the Ivy League schools. And it's really interesting because when... John, and you can watch him on, you, you, you can watch his presentation or hear it. Um, he, does a, he does a talk on telling the truth. And when he walks in, he basically says, and remember, these are university students. And they're told there is no absolute truth. There is no truth. And so John walks in, and he has just a very unique way about him, and he says, well, listen, I know we have different views on truth here, but we really don't have time to sort them out because I've got a limited amount of time. So I'm going to ask you if you will just let me go ahead and use my truth system uh, to tell you what I believe and use that to give you some illustrations. And I'll, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And he starts teaching scriptural principles with a lot of personal illustrations. They're not used to someone talking about truth. They're not One of John's principles is, you tell the truth, even if it costs you your job. And then he'll tell them about when he lost a job because he was the only guy in the room who would tell the CEO the truth. Uh, what's interesting is that John goes in and talks about ethics, and he bases it on the Word of God. Now, that's how it used to be. That was common. But now we've, we've, we've cut our legs out from under us because there is no truth. When I, 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 I was looking through Wayne's book, and I thought, okay, I'm going to read this. And I started reading it. And I will just simply tell you this. He's got his introduction to Christian ethics. What is Christian ethics? Christian ethics is any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us? about which acts, attitudes, and personal character traits receive God's approval, and which do not. Um, why should Christians study ethics? Um, this thing is loaded. It's all based on the Ten Commandments. And... Uh, We're in trouble because we have abandoned the Ten Commandments. We're in big trouble. I want to give you two principles, and if I can reach down and grab my notes, I'll share the principles with you. In a moment, we'll read Exodus 20, and we'll read the two commandments, but I want to go ahead and give you these two principles. The first one is this. The Ten Commandments are the gold standard of wisdom,
1: ethics, and law. Why? Because they are based on the moral character
0: of God. Now, that's a direct quote from Grudem. We'll look at that in a minute. I'll say it again. The Ten Commandments are the gold standard of wisdom, ethics, and law. Why? They are based on God's moral character. Second principle, when an individual or a nation departs from the first commandment, they immediately abandon the gold
1: standard of God's character. We'll come back to those.
0: Um, Before I read Exodus 20, Ten Commandments are also found in Deuteronomy 5. Philip Ryken, who's now president of Wheaton College, formerly was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, he's done an excellent book on the Ten Commandments called Written in Stone. Because in Deuteronomy 5, after God gives the commandments, it mentions specifically that there were two tablets, and God had etched the commandments on stone. You remember that. Um, they, I'm always asked to have a, a, a title for the semester. So my title for the semester
1: is Building on Bedrock because the Ten Commandments are based on stone. Uh, the foolish man built his house on the sand, Jesus said.
0: And when the storms came, Great was the dilemma. But the wise man built his house on the rock. Uh, The Ten Commandments are the revelation of God's character. Uh, Philip Ryken has said this. So this is going to be an interesting study because I'm not sure how long the study is going to go. I'm not given a schedule. But uh, we're going to do it for a a while. Uh, I think it's very pertinent to where we all are. Philip Ryken says this, Few things are more difficult to master than the biblical teaching about the law in its relationship to the gospel. Old Testament, New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. Yeah, how's that all sort out? People who are ignorant of God's law never see their need for the gospel. As John Bunyan explained it, the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin. And he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior. You have the law and you have the gospel, Uh, they work together. in Matthew 5:17 we're going to get to the 10 commandments but i didn't want to forget to mention this because it's critical in Matthew 5:17 Jesus said i did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it Jesus fulfilled the law as we study these commandments we will become aware of the fact that we break them. Um, we don't want to. I, I'm talking about even as believers now in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been born again. But we're in a process. We, we've been delivered from sin. We've been given eternal life by trusting in Christ alone, uh, First Corinthians 15 I delivered to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he rose on the third day that he appeared to Cephas to Peter he appeared to over 500 at one time
1: appeared to uh, the other apostles Paul says he appeared to me that's the gospel Jesus conquered death
0: Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place. And when we trust in what he did for us and his offer of the gospel, the gospel is good news. The bad news is we're sinners. The old road through Romans, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 6.23,
1: but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news. The the law is, uh, the, the law
0: can be confusing in the Bible. I'm, I'm setting things up a little bit. And I'm, you know, I do the study at lunch. And those guys, they're kind of the guinea pigs. Because <laughs> I run this, try it, and I did the, I mentioned this at the end. I want to do it up front right now. When we talk about the law, we talk about the old covenant. In a moment, we're going to read read Exodus 20. And Moses goes up to Sinai, and God is going to give him the law. That is called the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic, Moses, Moses. The covenant with Moses. It's a a covenant made with Moses and Israel. And so you've got Genesis, Exodus, okay. Now the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, did not start until Exodus 20. But it's in the rest of Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Have you ever read Leviticus at 5 a.m.? I mean, it's all you can do to stay up for 10 minutes. Why? It's all these regulations, and there's turtle doves, and there's incense, and there's the offering, and there's mercy, and and you say, Man, this is boring. If you were a Levitical priest, it would not be boring. You would have no problem with your attention span because you wanted to live. No kidding. You you wanted to perform the sacrifice correctly and not die. Nadab and Abihu offered strange fire,
1: and they were killed. They knew what they were doing.
0: That's law stuff. That's Israel stuff. That's Mosaic Covenant stuff. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you got law in those first five books from, really, Exodus 20 on. Okay, now, this is, there'll be a quiz on Friday. So I want to break this down. We'll come back to this later. The law gets really confusing, but it helps to understand you can break it into three parts. Number one, there was the civil law. Civil. We have civil laws. Laws for our county, laws for our state, laws for the nation, civil laws, all right? The civil laws given to Israel were for Israel. A number of years ago, there was a movement to say, those laws in Israel should be the laws of America. God never said that. They were for Israel. Civil law. So you got civil law, okay? Crimes and punishment. Then you have ceremonial law. Well, that's the feast, that's the worship, that's the sacrifices, that's the. all that stuff.
1: That to us is just kind of a mystery. Uh, Jesus fulfilled that. It's all. It, The New Testament is all about
0: this. The book of Hebrews is all about this. He was the high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies. Every high priest that ever walked into a Holy of Holies was holding an animal. Jesus was the the only high priest ever to walk into the Holy of Holies with his hands empty. You know why? He's the sacrifice. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus fulfilled the the civil law. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. Thirdly, there's a moral law. The moral law, uh, and and when, when, when Jesus fulfilled the law, not only did he die for our sins, but he fulfilled the law for us. I can't fulfill the law. I keep falling short. So Jesus died in my place, gave me eternal life, but he also fulfilled the law on my behalf so I don't have to fulfill the law. But the moral law, now follow me carefully here, okay? Mosaic law starts in Exodus 20. But you back up and you get Genesis one, and you got God creating the earth, then you got Adam and Eve, Then you got the two boys. Then you got all kinds of families and genealogies. Then you get into Noah. Then you get into Abraham.
1: Then you get into Isaac. You get into Jacob. You get into Joseph. There was no Mosaic law yet.
0: That's Exodus 20. Here's the deal the moral law. The moral law has been from the beginning and always will be for us. The moral law of God is for God's people in all cultures, in all generations, in all times. The moral
1: law is for all people. It's for all people. Often it comes up, well, what,
0: no, all right, so what about the people that don't have a Bible? What about the people that never hear about Jesus? We're going to study the Ten Commandments. But what about the people that have never read the Ten Commandments, aren't aware of the Ten Commandments? Romans 2, if you would, please. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. This For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Um, The moral law has been since creation. The moral law continues into the new covenant because every, by the way, by the way, the the reason we know the moral law was prior to God giving the law in Sinai is that we look at the different individuals in the Scripture, in Genesis, and, and different ones broke every one of the Ten Commandments. You go into the New Covenant, into the New Testament, and Jesus, as well as the apostles, teach the Ten Commandments. Teach the same thing. Because the moral law is for God's people, and it's for all people. It's the basis of all ethics. So we're not, we don't have to do civil law. We don't, hey, we we don't come here on Sunday morning and do sacrifices. Jesus died once for all. He paid it all. Right? Okay.
1: You guys still with me? Yep. This is not lightweight, evangelical, seeker sensitive,
0: <laughs> I don't want to offend you stuff. This is the Word of God. And and you know, this is going to take a little bit of, this is going to take some juice. And it takes a while to figure something. Wayne Grudem says it's sort of like figuring out a golf swing, which is why I quit. (laughs) I did it for a while. I said, forget this. I'm already frustrated. Why would I pay to be frustrated for five hours? I'm already ticked off. (laughs) I don't have enough time to get this right. Well, we can grow in grace and we can grow in the scriptures and begin to fit pieces together. This stuff is important. All you got to do is look around and see what's happened to us, to the world, to our nation. Okay. (laughs) Let's go to Exodus 20. If you can find Genesis, you can find Exodus. Genesis, Exodus. Exodus. Exodus 20, then God spoke all these words, saying, and this, what we're going to read next, is sort of the preamble to the Ten Commandments, the preamble to the Constitution, you know. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. A lot of people say the Old Testament is just law, it's just law, it's just law, God's hard, God's tough, God's judgmental. That's mercy. Yeah, but this is mercy, and this is grace. Yeah, God is just, as we'll see in a minute. But it's interesting to me that God identifies himself.
1: I'm the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. They were in slavery, and he brought them out. He was their savior. This, this, this is...
0: This is his mercy. This is his grace. Oh, you don't see God's grace in the Old Testament.
1: You see, it all, all the, you see it all the time. It's from Genesis to Revelation. All right, now he's going to give the commandments. You
0: shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Oh, there you go. There's, there's, God is hard. God is just so difficult. God is, that's not fair. That's, you know, it's interesting. Kids tend to emulate what they see, kids tend to emulate uh, emulate what uh, is before them. Over the years,
1: Whenever I've talked to a guy who hits his wife, at some point, I always ask them about their father. And
0: without exception, every guy that I've ever met who hits his wife had a father who hit his mother. Now, that can be broken by the power of Christ, but we tend to emulate Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, those who have suppressed the truth that's written on their hearts, but they, I'm commenting here, they they know I'm there, they know my commands. If you read earlier in Romans 1, Paul says every person knows that God exists. They know it because God's written the truth of himself on their hearts. They know he's there. Secondly, they know that he's there by observing creation. But he goes on and says, but suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We put truth in a box and we sit on it. We don't want to acknowledge him.
1: They hate him. Verse 6, but showing loving kindness to thousands,
0: to those who love me and keep my commandments. Next commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Next commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days
1: you shall labor and do all your work. Now in Egypt, they labored seven days. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it
0: you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male, your female servant, your cattle, your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Uh, You know, it's interesting. We're so far gone in evangelical Christianity. I think it's pretty safe to say that uh, a large number of Christian colleges don't believe what we just read.
1: That God created the world in six days. Well, that can't be. Well,
0: You do a little research, it could be. Oh, you got the Ice Age. And I, I just watched a video. I just watched a 45-minute video on the Ice Age, and these guys had more PhDs and da-da-da-da-da, and I think it's a very short period of time. I'm not here to get into that. But God says, take a day off, because I took a day off. He wasn't tired. He did it for us, as an example. Twelve. Verse 12, honor your father and mother. This is all about authority. We're always under authority. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Next commandment, you shall not murder. Next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, Grudem, in his section on you shall not commit adultery, it's 196 pages long. You shall not commit adultery. Well, the flip side of that is then what is marriage? What does God say marriage is? Well, now we have gay marriage. That didn't exist till 2001. I think it was either Norway or, I think it was Denmark. And then of course, there's a rush to it. If you're gonna talk about marriage, well then, well then you gotta talk about divorce. And then you gotta talk about remarriage. and Then you gotta talk about children. And then you gotta talk about adoption. And then you gotta talk about in vitro fertilization because there are different ways now to have children. And then you've got to talk about gender, which has never been an issue, but it's an issue now. And then you've got to talk about transgenderism.
1: And hmm. But God has something to say about all of this.
0: And there are clear principles in Scripture to help guide us through this stuff that is absolutely new turf to us. And when children and grandchildren ask... There's wisdom in God's word. You just got to go back.
1: (laughs) You go back to first principles.
0: You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. There you go. J.I. Packer did a small little book on um, the Ten Commandments. called Keeping the Ten Commandments. And in the middle of one of his chapters, he says, and here I pause to ask my readers, do you know the Ten Commandments? My guess is that if you are over, and this book was written 10 years ago, he says 40. So I'm going to adjust it to 50. My guess is, if you were over 50, you do. But if you were under 40, you don't.
1: Well, there's a reason you wouldn't. And it goes back to law and what's taught in the schools. You get what I'm saying?
0: About half a century ago, churches generally ceased teaching the commandments, either from the pulpit or in Sunday school or anywhere else. I do not mean that none of the moral and spiritual principles of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, were taught in any way at all. But we teach the gospel, but we're kind of weak on ethics. Uh, I only mean that as it being a unified code of conduct and a grid for behavior the Ten Commandments has dropped out. Uh, So I ask you, could you repeat the Ten Commandments from memory? He has a section called Forgotten Wisdom. It's just brief. What he's saying is the commandments are the gold standard for wisdom, for how to live skillfully, for ethics, for law, for justice. He says, now the blueprint for this life was set out for all time in the Ten Commandments that God gave the Jews through Moses on Sinai, 13 centuries roughly before Christ. Yesterday's Christians saw them as the plain man's guide to ethics.
1: They were right. Today's world, even today's church, has largely forgotten them. This is our folly and our loss,
0: for here in nugget form is the wisdom we need. Because Scripture calls God's Ten Commandments law—now catch this, this is really good—we assume they are like the law of the land, a formal code of do's and don'ts, restricting personal freedom for the sake of public order, but the comparison is wrong. Torah, Hebrew for law, means the sort of instruction a good parent, father, gives his child Proverbs 1.8 and 6.20 actually use Torah for parental teaching. Think of all the wise man's words to his sons in Proverbs 1.8 to 8.36. Think of those words as addressed to us by our Heavenly Father himself. That will give you a right idea of the nature and purpose of God's law. It's not there to thwart self-expression, although it may sometimes feel like that, for children hate discipline, but to lead us into the ways that are best for us. The little Lucas, he's over at the house the other day. He's two. I mean, he's just he, anyway. Walks over. We, you know, we built this new house. We got a stove with 99 burners. We only use one at a time. Just thought I'd share that. I just kind of needed to. I needed to talk with someone about that. But there, actually, there's a couple burners on, and he walks over and he goes, he goes hot, hot. I go hot. And he walks a little closer. Well, and he touched something the other day, and he's got a little mark. He knows what hot means. It's a father. Don't touch that, it's hot. Hey, fire is good. You can cook a steak with fire. You can have a nice fire in the fireplace. But if it gets out of the fireplace, it's not good. It's a father. Saying, hey, here's how you do it. Here's the better way. You don't have to go. Don't do it. Your friends say that. Forget your friends. They don't know what they're talking about. Here's the way to live. Live by these commandments. This
1: is good for you. This is how you have a a full and rich life. You guys still there? Let's go to the two principles. First principle, ah, but I
0: forgot. I forgot Matthew 22. Let's go to Matthew 22, then we'll do the two principles. Yeah. I got to tell you something funny. I've been taking this stuff. I am, 30 years ago, Mary gave me an article on ADD. And she wanted me to read it so I could, uh, our kids, you know. I'm reading this thing. I'd never heard of ADD in my life. And I finished it, and I told her, I said, that's me. She said, yeah, I know. (laughs) It it just is. Uh, About a year ago, my son Josh, who has those issues, He told me about something he'd been taking that had really helped his focus. And he said, I'm telling you, Dad, you ought to try this. Just try it. Ask your doctor. And so I did. And I said, yeah. So I, you know. And uh, it's helped me. I take a half. The second Sunday I preach for Chuck, I'm standing up here,
1: and I'm thinking, what's wrong with me? I look at my notes, but they're not computing. My mind
0: is right. I mean, I took a hole. Yeah, that was interesting. There wasn't a lot of heresy that morning. But, and I, I called Josh that night and I told him about it. He goes, Yeah, was your mind like going double speed? I go, Yeah. He said, Yeah, I've, I've done that. Anyway. So I took a smaller dose today. That's probably why I forgot Matthew 22. Uh, But Matthew 22 is important in regard
1: to the Ten Commandments. So here's what happens.
0: Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, it's kind of the Democrat-Republican thing, in the religious circles of Israel. They gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? Which is the greatest commandment of the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So we've got the 10 commandments, and here Jesus
1: summarizes them into two. But it's the moral law of God. Love God, love your neighbor. Your wife's your neighbor. See? It's just practical Christianity. Let's go to the two principles.
0: Because we're in trouble. By the way, I want to say this. If you watched any of the if you saw any footage of that confirmation thing yesterday, let me tell you what that was all about. What that is about, it's Psalm 2. You can read it later. The the, the the rulers of the earth rage against the Lord. Basically, what they wanted to know, really at the lowest common denominator, here's what they wanted to know. Are you going in any way, shape, or form to rule in favor of any of the Ten Commandments.
1: We don't want this God stuff. We don't, uh,
0: we don't want to hear this family stuff.
1: On your father and
0: mother. We're, we're, we don't want to hear that. We, we, we don't want you in any way to impede upon our right to murder. Children in the womb and sell their body parts. We don't want in any way for you to impede our sexual anarchy. We don't want you in any and really you could work your way down. We do not want you to impede our desire to covet and to lust over what others have that we don't have, and we will do anything and break any law and do whatever we have to do to take it. This is all law. In essence, that's what they're saying. Principle one, the Ten Commandments are the gold standard of wisdom, ethics, and law. Why? They're based on God's moral character. I'm going to quote from Grudem here. He says this, The basis of the Bible's ethical standards is the moral character of God. you got to have some standard for laws. Every, oh, that law is just legislating morality. Every law legislates morality. It's just whose who's morality is being legislated. You see? The basis of the Bible's ethical standard is the moral character of God. Number one, he observes, God's character is Good. Psalm one nineteen sixty eight. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Deuteronomy thirty two four. The rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. Romans says there is no injustice with God. Sometimes we think God has been unjust. God can't be unjust because of his character. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is absolutely just. He can't be unjust. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Second point he makes. God approves of creatures who conform to his moral character. Once again, God approves of creatures who conform to his moral character. To believers, there are some scriptures. Let me read his his statement under there. He says, many other passages in Scripture show that God desires and approve of moral creatures who conform to his moral character, just as God is loving, just, merciful, faithful, truthful, holy, and so forth. He also desires that we act in ways that are loving, just, merciful, faithful, truthful, holy, and so forth. In other words, it's good to see a Christian who lives out what they believe, as opposed to hypocrisy. Here are some verses. 1 Peter 1.15. But as he who called you is holy, you will also be holy, holy in all your conduct. Luke 6, 36. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Ephesians 5, 1. He quotes John Murray, uh, professor at Westminster Seminary many years ago. In the last analysis... Why must we behave in one way and not in another? The ultimate standard of right is the character or nature of God. The basis of ethics is that God is what he is, and we must be conformed to what he is in holiness, righteousness, truth, goodness, and love. God made man in his own image, and after his likeness, man must therefore be like God. Erwin Lutzer, some of you heard this summer great preacher, great writer, did a book a long time ago called Exploding the Myths That Could Destroy America. He has a section on ethics. And this section is called Reasons That Man Cannot Build a Moral Ethic Without God. And then under that, the subtitle is The Limits of Human Wisdom. One of the most startling statements made in the Bible is Paul's remark in 1 Corinthians 1.20, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? This statement seems to contradict the great advances of science that we have witnessed in this generation. Man is able to go to the moon, return safely, he can build computers that do complex mathematical problems in split seconds, he can perform a triple bypass operation, and yet God says the wisdom of man is foolishness. Does not science appear to conflict with this dismal evaluation of human wisdom? He writes, the discrepancy can be easily resolved. As long as man explores the physical creation, he is able to discover laws that he can creatively use in scientific experiments. But when man begins to speculate on that which is non-empirical, that which lies beyond the senses, he gropes for understanding. Knowledge of this world does not help him in metaphysical speculations in religion and ethics. Science can teach us how to make a hydrogen bomb, but can give us no guidance as to how when the bomb should be used. Science is silent regarding values. Therefore, the truly important matters, the ultimate questions of the purpose of man's existence and his relationship to God cannot be discovered by human reasoning. For that, we need a special revelation the Bible. Why is man unable to erect a moral system from an atheistic viewpoint? Which is what is going on all around us. First, he can never move from what is to what ought to be. He can study various cultures, but he cannot take the next step and say what ought to be done. He can find no measuring stick by which diverse cultures can be judged. Oh, they're all the same. We're all all exceptional. No, we're not. They used to have something called Western Civilization that you'd study. Churchill called it Christian Civilization. I remember when Stanford announced... We're not doing that anymore. And then they brought in called, something called multiculturalism, and immediately when you say that and you say you're against it, they think you're racist. We're not talking race.
1: We're not talking race here at all. Different cultures have different gods. Western civilization is built on the Judeo Christian ethic, the Bible. Oh, we can't have that anymore, and we don't.
0: David Hume was the first to articulate the dilemma. He concluded that it is impossible to say that any action is morally wrong. As already noted, he believed that actions such as murder and stealing are not wrong, but simply negative feelings. Morality is nothing but a matter of personal preference. The Judeo-Christian viewpoint, and this is where we are today, the Judeo-Christian viewpoint overcomes this dilemma. God determines what ought to be. Although man is not able to construct a moral standard, the creator is. Morality becomes possible. In India, for thousands of years, they practiced the Hindu burial ceremony of Suti. A man would die, they would take his body. If he lived near the Ganges, they'd put it on a wooden raft, cover it with kindling, torch it. But
1: before they would torch it, they'd take his living wife and put her on it. That's multiculturalism. Luther tells the story of The two men in India.
0: One said, my conscience tells me to burn a widow with the corpse of her husband, a pagan told the British officer. The officer replied, my conscience tells me to hang you if you do. (laughs) You familiar with Alfie Evans? Let's see if I have this. Alfie Evans, this is, uh, Richard Land wrote this May 2nd of this year. It's called Alfie Evans in Britain's Post-Christian, Post-Human, Pagan Culture. Early Saturday morning, little Alfie Evans' ordeal ended. I believe with all my heart, he's now in the arms of the Lord Jesus for eternity. Sadly, our ordeal to survive as a civilized, humane society continues. Little Alfie survived for five days after his respirator was cut off. Alfie, just 23 months old, had a degenerative neurological condition that the British doctors failed to diagnose with any further precision. Indeed, after his life support was removed, the British British medical personnel seemed shocked that little Alfie continued to attempt to successfully breathe, assisted periodically by his mother and father, administering mouth-to-mouth resuscitation when little Alfie's lips would start turning blue. Five days later, Alfie finally died. Like little British baby Charlie Gard last fall, British National Health Service officials, the British courts and then the European court refused to allow Alfie's parents to remove little Alfie from the hospital. Their stated goal was not to needlessly prolong his suffering, so instead they administered death therapy by physically preventing Alfie's parents from taking him elsewhere for medical assistance. This heartless Heartless and dangerous precedent setting decision was help upheld in the court's wall. Even though there were viable alternatives available that would not cost the NHS a farthing financially, the Italian people, granted little Alfie citizenship in their country, they sent a specially equipped ambulance plane to stand by, ready at a moment's notice to take him to a Rome hospital. The British authorities posted armed guards around the hospital to prevent anyone from removing Alfie from his medical prison.
1: This is where abandoning the sanctity of every human life ethic leads, a
0: post-Christian, post-human culture that becomes objectly pagan. The Britain of C.S. Lewis is a fading memory. Thou shalt not
1: commit murder. They killed that little boy. But why not? What's the big deal? God says it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, it is. Second principle. And for you guys who are here for the first time, uh, I do have a clock, but I don't look at it. Won't be too much longer. Second principle. When an individual or nation departs from the first commandment, they immediately abandon the gold standard of God's character
1: back to Grudem for a minute here's what he's you see how practical this stuff is see how real it is
0: when God spoke to the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai he began by identifying himself and what he had done I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then came the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This commandment is a reminder that we are always and everywhere in the presence of God and that he will tolerate no other small gods in any place at any time in our lives. We don't have idols in our homes. We don't have Buddhas. A car can be an idol. Your kids can be an idol. Your abs can be an idol. Your resume can be an idol. Your degrees can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. John Calvin said the human heart is an idol-making factory.
1: He's got two points about the first commandment. A right relationship with God is necessary for a right
0: understanding of ethics and right ethical living. He quotes Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Before we can rightly listen to fully understand or joyfully joyfully obey the other commandments, we must first come to the point where we know God and love Him and indeed fear Him, in that we should fear displeasing Him and fear incurring His fatherly discipline then we will be ready to obey Him rightly. Because this command challenges our heart at the deepest level, we should immediately realize that in this lifetime it's impossible to obey it perfectly. And so this command should drive us to Christ for full forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We live in the presence of God all the time. Psalm fifteen, three: the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Every place. There are no secret places that you can hide from God. He keeps watch on the evil and the good. Second Chronicles sixteen, nine: the eyes of the Lord run to and fro about the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully his, that he may
1: strongly support them. You've heard the motto, what... Uh, What you do in Vegas stays in Vegas. Maybe you're in Vegas and your wife is somewhere else, but the Lord is in every place. And your sin will find you out. For the Lord sees a man
0: not by looking at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, 1 Samuel 16. Second point he makes. When societies ignore the first commandment, much evil follows. When societies ignore the first commandment, much evil follows. To put, uh, uh, when a society forsakes the idea that we live in the presence of God and that we are accountable to him for our actions, evil deeds multiply. That's the hyperinflation of evil and lawlessness, which is what we're seeing right now. Grudem tells a personal story. In 1971, when I was 23 and a first-year seminary student in the United States, the Supreme Court gave an interpretation a new interpretation of the concept of freedom of religion in the First Amendment to the Constitution. In the case Lemon v. Kurtzman, the court ruled that government actions must not have the primary effect of advancing or inhibiting religion. It did not say advancing or inhibiting the Christian religion or the Catholic religion or the Jewish religion or Presbyterian and so forth, but advancing or inhibiting religion something the First Amendment never meant and was never intended to mean. There were many consequences, but one in particular was seen in public schools, which are an arm of the government. Watch this. Increasingly, school teachers and other officials were prohibited from making any positive affirmation of belief in God or accountability to God, even in a non-sectarian way. The result has been that since 1971, American society has been populated by people who throughout their formative years have been educated Without any sense of a societal consensus that people are moral, morally accountable to God for their actions. He's right. So, why are there school shootings? Well, you tell me. That's just a form of war. Why is there war? School shootings are another type of war. Why are there terrorist attacks? Why are there. I was reading Martin Lloyd Jones on this this week. Fascinating stuff. He says, the problem starts with sin and the problem starts with us. God never said that there would be no war. In fact, Jesus said in the last days, (laughs) wars would increase. But all the liberal theologians in the UN, they get together, oh, how do we we not have war? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen because you lust and you don't have Lutzer gave this illustration on November 17, 1980. The Supreme Court struck down a Kentucky law, this is 1980, that required the posting of the Ten Commandments in public school classrooms. The justices ruled that having them before the students was a form of state sponsored religious indoctrination prohibited by the First Amendment. The court said that the Ten Commandments were plainly religious and may induce children to read, meditate upon, perhaps to venerate, and to obey the commandments. professing to be wise, they became as fools. This is where we are. This is where your kids are. This is where your grandkids are. So what do we do? It comes down to each man. How many years have we been hearing this? How many years? Oh, wouldn't it be great if we had a Christian in the White House? Wouldn't it be great if we had a Christian in the White House? Yeah. You know what I'm more
1: concerned about? Is having a Christian in the Blue House. What color is your house? What color is your
0: brick and your stone? Oh, wouldn't that make a
1: difference? Yeah. But what, wouldn't it make a difference in your house and in my house? For a father who actually says, Lord, we want to walk
0: in your ways and we want to walk in your commandments. To have a father who doesn't act one way at church
1: and then act like hell at home. But as a father who talks about integrity but the phone rings. Hey, dad, it's such and such. Tell him I'm not here. Not much I can do about the whole world. But with Joshua, as for me and my house,
0: we will serve the Lord. Let's pray together. We need your help, Father. This can be overwhelming, but we thank you that your eyes are upon us. We, we feel like we're just up against evil and the influence on children. And grandchildren, it, it's, Lloyd-Jones talked about exceptional evil. We're, we're beyond that. It's hyperinflating.
1: So, dear God, we ask you for help. We pray for ourselves, that we would guard our hearts. We,
0: we pray for our relationships. We pray for our children and grandchildren, that we can walk in your truth, not depart from it. These commandments shall be in your heart, and you shall not depart from them, neither
1: to the right nor to the left. We want to walk on your ways, and we want your favor. We trust you with our lives. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. For, For the man who
0: has never said, Lord Jesus, I believe that you died
1: on the cross for me in my place. I believe that you're God. I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sin. Be my shepherd. Be my God. Show me how to live. When we pray that, Lord, you remove our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. What a Savior. What a gospel. What a great God.